0: Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Core Concepts, brought to you by the CMC EM Guidewire team, the residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center. This week we have with us... Jeremy
2: Driscoll. Chelsea Wilson.
1: Zach Edges. And me, Sean Murray. This week's edition is brought to you by EKGs. EKGs. Not always just squiggly lines. EKGs. Alright everybody, today we are talking about a very sexy topic. I don't want to give it away just yet. We'll do a little case presentation and see if you can get where we're going. Let's say you've got a patient, he comes rolling by, he's complaining of some sharp chest pain. You take a great history as you always do, you learn that it radiates to his left shoulder, he's feeling a little bit short of breath, his chest pain is pleuritic and he feels like it's worsening since onset about 12 hours ago. He hasn't found anything that makes him feel better except leaning forward.
2: So what exactly do I see in here when I look and examine this patient, Sean? Let's
1: say he's a middle-aged guy, he's about 40 years old, he seems pretty fit, he's not obese. He's sitting up in the bed, kind of clutching his chest, doing that Levine sign. He's a little bit tachycardic to 105 beats per minute. He's normotensive. He's afebrile. He's tachypneic to about 25. He seems to be splinting. He's really having a tough time breathing. When you lay him down to do your abdominal exam, he just grimaces and has a tough time being in that position. When you do listen to him, his lungs are clear. His heart sounds are regular. In our busy and loud department, you don't hear any adventitious heart sounds that you're not expecting.
0: Without some more information, my differential is still pretty broad. This guy could have a big pulmonary embolism, early onset acute coronary syndrome, a pneumothorax, and lots of other things. I'm a little surprised no one's shoved an EKG
1: in my face yet.
0: Didn't he get one in triage?
1: He did. When you look at it, your eyes are immediately drawn to the ST elevation. You see that in lead V4, V5, he's got it in V6. Uh,
2: But wait a second. It looks like there's some more elevation in two... 3, and AVF.
1: You're right. Good spot. What the heck are we dealing with here? Uh, this is pericarditis, right? Or it certainly could be. I think we have to learn a little bit more to decide for sure. Fortunately, we've got our resident expert here, Dr. Zach Hedges with us. How did you end up being the resident expert here at CMC, Dr. Hedges?
3: Well, Sean, I got assigned a lecture by uh, the good Dr. Allen.
1: Well, thanks, Dr. Allen. We're all better for it. I'm just here so I don't get fined.
2: So, uh, Zach, what exactly about this patient's presentation makes you think it's pericarditis?
3: So Sean gave a great description of the classic pericarditis presentation. So oftentimes these patients are going to come in saying they have sharp retrosternal chest pain. It's made worse with deep breaths. It can be made worse by swallowing. Classically, it's made worse by lying flat and better when you sit up. Really anything that's going to apply pressure that pushes that pericardium onto the heart is going to make that pain worse. Oftentimes, these patients will be a little tachycardic. They might have radiation of their pain into their shoulder, and that's because of the innervation of the pericardium by the phrenic nerve can give you referred pain to your trapezial ridge. Oftentimes, these patients will come in with some antecedent cough, congestion, um, generally viral-type symptoms, but it's easy to confuse this with other diagnoses like ACS, PE, or pneumonia. But wait.
0: A patient comes in with pleuritic chest pain and tachycardia.
3: They're all kinds of other things i need to think about too right yeah and that's what makes pericarditis such a fun diagnosis to make it's not dangerous in and of itself per se but it oftentimes mimics a lot of other etiologies of chest pain that can be quite dangerous
2: so now that we spent like 30 minutes going through the vindicated apes right uh, we kind of have a differential so what tests exactly are we going to be ordering on this patient
3: So the great thing about pericarditis is that you can actually diagnose it with just your good old-fashioned history and physical. So more than 95% of your patients are going to be describing the classic pericarditic chest pain. A smaller percentage of those will also have a friction rub. This happens in about 30 to 35% of your patients. And then on your EKG, you should see the stereotypical changes in about 90% of cases.
1: All right, so we've got our EKG. What's going to help us differentiate this ST elevation from, let's say, an ST elevation MI? So the first question you should ask yourself
3: is not, is this pericarditis, but what about this EKG makes it not ischemia? So classically, pericarditis is going to show up as diffuse ST elevations, whereas an ischemic EKG or a STEMI is going to have elevations in one arterial distribution. A couple other things that you can look for is your typical hallmarks of ischemia, such as the morphology of your ST segment, so if it's convex rather than concave, if you see the development of Q waves, that's going to point more towards ischemia. If you see elevation in lead 3 more than lead 2, that might point you towards ischemia and away from pericarditis. On the other hand, in pericarditis, you can also see something like uh, ST segment depression in AVR with elevation of that PR segment, which is about 80 to 90% sensitive and specific. So what's causing the pericarditis? It's usually a virus, right? So usually it's a virus, The vast majority of cases are ultimately diagnosed as either viral or idiopathic, idiopathic being, in the literature, anywhere from 35 to 85%. Overall, the causes of pericarditis can be broken down into infectious or non-infectious etiologies, infectious being viral, bacterial, or even tubercular pericarditis. Non-infectious etiologies can be further broken down into iatrogenic or non-iatrogenic. As I said before, the most common is going to be idiopathic in that non-iatrogenic subcategory, but you can also get it from things like radiation and the cancer patients getting thoracic radiation. You can see it after uh, heart surgery, like your cabbage patients. Really anything that violates that pericardium uh, can lead to pericarditis.
2: So are there any additional tests that we should do if we're really zoning in on that diagnosis of pericarditis?
3: So as I said before, the diagnosis can be made strictly on your history and physical and supported by an EKG. Likely you're going to order other tests, but this is more to rule out other badness. So you'll often get a troponin, maybe some basic labs, a chest x-ray, and probably an
1: echo. All right, well, let's say that we do all that and everything comes back looking normal and we're pretty confident that this is pericarditis. These patients are going to be able to go home, right? Usually
3: patients diagnosed with pericarditis can go home if they are young, healthy, and otherwise well-appearing. A couple of patients you might want to hold on to or admit include those who are immunocompromised, if they present with a high fever, or if you do an echo and you see a moderate to large size pericardial effusion, you might want to watch them for a little bit longer. Additionally, consider patients who are anticoagulated uh, as being more high risk than your average patient and another person you might want to admit for observation.
2: All right, so let's say we're sending this patient home. He's still in a lot of pain. Remember those Prescani scores? What are we going to do about that?
3: Most episodes of pericarditis can be managed conservatively with NSAIDs and colchicine. So historically, patients have been treated with aspirin, and we're not talking about your ACS-dose aspirin. We're talking 800 milligrams to a gram of aspirin taken three times daily. The other thing is that you're going to be treating these patients for a longer duration than what you would normally treat patients with NSAIDs for. So The recommendations for aspirin are 800 milligrams of aspirin three times daily for the first week, and then decrease that gradually by about 250 milligrams weekly every one to two weeks for a month. Likewise, you can treat patients with ibuprofen. Again, that dose is going to be 600 milligrams orally three times daily for a week, and then decrease by 200 milligrams every week for about a month.
0: And what about my favorite medication for what I don't know what's
3: going on with the patient? Steroids. So with the etiology of pericarditis being inflammation of the pericardium, you might think that giving the patient a steroid would be a good idea. However, several large trials uh, that have been conducted in the last 5 to 10 years have shown that the use of prednisone is actually an independent risk factor for the development of recurrent pericarditis. So another adjunctive therapy that you can and should use in these patients presenting with their first episode of pericarditis is colchicine. So the ICAP trial came out in 2013, which randomized 280 patients to NSAIDs plus colchicine or NSAIDs plus placebo and found that adding colchicine in with your first episode of pericarditis is going to reduce your rates of recurrent pericarditis by about half. It's going to result in higher remission rates at a week, and it's going to result in fewer hospitalization. The dose for colchicine is going to be a milligram to two milligrams orally on day one and then 0.5 milligrams orally BID
1: for about three months. Anything that we need to be telling our patients as we prescribe them colchicine?
3: So another thing to consider is that you're about to put this patient on colchicine as well as a high-dose NSAID regimen, which constitutes a full frontal assault on the lining of their GI tract. So be considerate and prescribe the patient a PPI. The other things you need to keep in mind when prescribing colchicine is that it can be kind of hard on the liver and the kidneys, so be careful in these patients. And then... Pregnancy is a contraindication as well.
1: All right. Well, Dr. Hedges, I think that you made us all much better doctors today. Let's review what we learned, core concepts.
2: So if a patient comes in with chest pain or shortness of breath, make sure pericarditis is on that differential. Work them up as you normally would, and when you get that EKG and see some ST elevation, do a double take. Make sure that those ST elevations are diffuse and not regional. Make sure that there's not... ST elevation in lead 3 more than lead 2, because that's always going to be bad. And evaluate for PR depression and maybe a little ST depression in AVR.
1: Consider getting an echo. If the patient has an effusion, they might need another echo at their follow-up. Treatment
0: options include high-dose aspirin for 3 weeks, an ibuprofen taper from 6 to 800 milligrams for 1 week, and then decrease by 200 milligrams every 1 to 2 weeks following that. Colchicine, 1 to 2 milligrams in the emergency department, or 0.5 milligrams per day every day after that. Make sure to counsel about the GI side effects of colchicine, as well as consider prescribing a
3: proton pump inhibitor for GI protection. You guys nailed it. Your teacher's proud. If anybody is interested in looking at a great set of EKGs to practice with, ECG Weekly by Dr. Matu is a great resource. That's all we have today. Uh, from all the residents and faculty here at Carolina's Medical Center, thanks for listening. Toodles. Thanks for listening to
0: EM Guidewire. Go. Be awesome today. CMC out.
3: (laughs) Toodles.